Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll try to get through this um, this uh, meth- message uh, in, a, in a timely fashion, um, but it's fitting that we're actually going to be talking about worship this morning. We're going to be zeroing in on this idea of worship, but we're going to be looking at it from a very necessary biblical perspective. Today, my hope is to explore a biblical hymn with you. And if you didn't already know it, verses 15 through 20 in the book of Colossians chapter 1 are just that. Uh, These words words constitute a hymn of praise that the Apostle Paul wrote for the edification of the church in Colossae. Uh, Scholars across the board all understand how uh, ancient writing was was produced and how it was laid out. And so there's a clear uh, distinction in this block of verses inside of the scripture that identify this as a Greek psalm or a Greek hymn inside of Paul's day. So really powerful idea. After we go through this text, after we work through all the details, what we're going to do is we're going to examine why having good songs is actually so crucial to our identity as Christians, why having good songs is actually crucial to our practice, and then last but not least, listen to me clearly, church, why having good songs is actually crucial to the longevity of Christians. Having good songs matters for our continued holding fast and standing firm inside of the Lord. It did for the Colossians, and we're going to see how it does for us today. So without further ado, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. These are the words of God. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. You know what that means? Everything. Okay? Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verses 18 through 20. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, Jesus, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." Finally, verses 21 through 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, this is where the song takes a turn back to his instruction, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. 
So the idea here, as I've shared in the past, is that Paul is confronting what is widely known, what is well-known, scholarly uh, knowledge here, as well as, um, as well as many theologians would agree with this. They're, he's addressing what is known as the Colossian heresy. Okay? And that heresy in particular is the temptation, well, it's false teaching, that is tempting the church to believe and to trust in man-made philosophies, man-made traditions, and man-made principles. And all of that over and against God-made philosophies, God-made traditions, and God-made principles. Now, I've shared this every week up to this point in the series, and I want you to hear it very clearly. God does not have a problem with philosophy. It's simply a study of how we know things. God does not have a problem with philosophy. God does not have a problem with tradition. God does not have a problem with principles. He just has a problem with your philosophy, tradition, and principles. He just doesn't like your stuff. What he wants you to do is come on board through faith and trust him. But I think a natural question arises when we, when we look at this idea of temptation or, or straying from the faith. And that is, why is temptation a thing for Christians? Why, why is it that we face this? Don't we instinctively, or more particularly, why is following after man's ways a temptation for Christians? Don't we instinctively know that God's ways are best? Don't we instinctively know that God's ways are best? Well, the answer actually is surprising to you. The answer is, as Christians, yes. We do instinctively know that God's ways are best. Uh, the Scripture tells us that we're a redeemed people. The Scripture says that we're saints in light. How many of you like that picture of us? Uh, the Scripture tells us that we are redeemed. It says that we are holy ones. That is keeping company with the great cloud of witnesses that we read about in Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12. So in that sense, we definitely understand this. And as saints, the scripture tells us that we have the mind of Christ. How many of you have read that in your Bibles? How many of you chose to forget that that's in the Bible? <laughs> right? You have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. But this does not mean that we don't have a real enemy and that we don't face real temptation. We do. So why are these a temptation? Why are these an issue? Because we have a real enemy, church. We do have the mind of Christ, but the same scripture that tells us we have the mind of Christ also tells us that we are, to be we are not to be conformed to this world. Do you know what your proclivity is? You know what you're drawn towards? Being conformed to this world. And so the statement to you is don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. But instead what? Be transformed by the renewing of what? Your mind. This thing needs changed, okay? We have the mind of Christ, but at the same time, we need it renewed. And it is being renewed if we will surrender to Jesus. It is being renewed day after day after day. That's found in Romans 12 too. One of the enemy's strategies is to set up lofty ideals, and his attempt is to get us to conform to the patterns of this world. What is what is that code word for? Man-made philosophies, man-made traditions, and man-made principles. It's the same message throughout the Bible, church. I've shared many times in the past that the devil will not fool us with a $3 bill, right? Why will the devil not fool us with a $3 bill? Because you all know $3 bills don't exist. The devil is going to fool you with something that he can counterfeit. And trust me when I say his ability to counterfeit is unrivaled. 
His ability to counterfeit is unbelievable. So my point here with these lofty ideas is that Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 23, he says that these, uh, these foolish ideas, these man-made philosophies, they have an appearance of wisdom. Church, please, please understand this. Just because you think it's wise doesn't mean it's God. Just because you think it's wise, just because your grandma told you it was wise, just because a thousand people have told you it was wise, or it is wise, doesn't mean it is. What is our standard? What do we gauge wisdom by? The Word of God. The Word of God. And the reason why we would be willing to humble ourselves and go to the Word of God is because we actually fear God. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. It's the beginning of wisdom. This is how this works. We fear God, and so we don't trust ourselves on a daily basis. We actually surrender and begin to trust our Heavenly Father. The devil's strategy, do you remember it in the garden with Adam and Eve? His strategy was to ask Eve a really important question. He said, did God really say? Did God really say? What is this implying? He's trying to see if she, she will interpret it differently. Or if Adam will interpret it differently. This is a great problem in the church today. Okay? The great problem in the church today is everybody's, everybody thinks themselves to be the Pope. Okay? All of us Protestants rail against the Catholics and rail against the Pope. But in the Protestant circles, we go, I only need the Holy Spirit in my Bible. Thanks, Pope. Thanks, Pope. I'm glad you think that. But that's not true. We actually need the Word of God, and we need it rightly divided, and that comes through the very thing that the same Word of God told us we needed, which is pastors and teachers and people to help us understand these ideas. So please, church, we've got to understand it, but the devil, the devil loves to do this. Did God really say? And what follows is always subtle, covert deception and lies. And again... He's unrivaled at his ability to lie. He's the father of lies, according to the scripture. He's mastered this art of twisting God's word in such a way to make it sound convincing to all of us. We're like, oh, that seems pretty reasonable. And yet, we're believing a lie if we're not careful. His agenda, by the way, is clear according to the scripture also. Paul just told us in verse 23. His agenda is to get you to stop trusting God and start trusting man-made philosophies, man-made ideas, man-made principles and traditions. Do you know that the devil really doesn't care if you worship him? He just doesn't want you to worship Jesus? Do you know that? And he's real, real good at it. Here's why he doesn't care if you worship him. He's already lost. He already lost. What, do we wor- what does he think? Does he think he's not going to escape burning fire? No. (laughs) Sorry, bud. That's the way this works. But he doesn't want you to trust God. He doesn't want you to hold fast to the very gospel message that we have uh, stated that we believe. But let's be clear as to how we respond. With the knowledge of God's word alone. Not our opinions, not our feelings, not any of those things. In order to do this, listen to me clearly, church, in order to respond with God's word, what do we have to do first? We have to know it. That comes through reading, but we have to know God's word. Second thing that I believe is vitally important is that we have to understand God's word. Okay? We have to understand God's word. And guess what is most important of all? You can know it, you can understand it, but you have to believe it at some point. 
You see, here's what we know about Adam and Eve. They knew God's command, didn't they? It's clear as day, God said it to them. God said, don't eat from the fruit of this tree. They knew the command. Whether or not they understood it is something that I really want to ask when I get to heaven. (laughs) Were they stupid? I don't know what's happening. This is really hard, okay? But here's one thing we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. They didn't believe it. They knew God's word. They may, may or may not have understood it, but they sure didn't believe it. You know how I know? They trusted the devil. You know how I know whether or not you believe God's word? By the life you live. You know how you know whether or not I believe the word of God? By the life I live. By the person that I follow. By the one that I am keeping close step with all the days of my life. That's how you know. You will know them by their fruit. That's what the scripture says. Check out this quote by A.W. Tozer. Here's what he writes. He says, were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Powerful, powerful words. We, were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. I believe, and this is where we connect all this with Colossians and this great hymn, I believe that we can know what men think. I believe that we can know what influential men think. I believe that we can get to what they know, what they understand, and what they believe according to the scripture. You know how I believe we can know that? Simply look at their songs. Look at their songs and you will find out what people believe. This goes for secular and sacred, by the way. This goes for secular and sacred. Listen to the songs on secular radio and you will know what the culture actually believes. You will know what the culture actually believes. It may be a muddled mess of nonsense, but they believe it. Okay? And sadly, it might be a muddled mess of nonsense on Christian radio too. And that's the problem. We believe this confusing mess. So, This great hymn, it's an amazing thing. Starting at verse 15 and 16, here's what we're going to see about this song. He says, he is the image of the invisible God. Who is he in this? Jesus. He's been talking about Jesus the whole time. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. Now, if you were a songwriter and you were writing lyrics that had really good themes, this would be your go-to. This is what you go to because here's the three themes we just saw. Number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Try to capture that in song lyrics. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Number two, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, capturing that in lyrics is wonderful. Explaining it to a 21st century audience is necessary. (laughs) We do not get what it is that he's saying there. Number three, all things exist by him and for him. By him and for him. So, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 7. These are the words of Jesus himself, and he was talking to one of his disciples who really wasn't getting it. His name was Philip. His name was Philip. His name was Philip. So, 
Okay, just, just making sure you're paying attention and you get it, Phil. Did Phil do a good job in worship this morning, guys, or what? Yes. So, Phil, this is just for you, okay? If you had known me, Phil, that's how you got to say it, just so you know, okay? <laughs> okay. So he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. That's a pretty powerful statement there. The question, of course, that we always have to ask is how? What do you mean, Jesus? How, how in the world can I know the Father by knowing you? That, that's not making sense to me. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. How's that possible, Jesus? Philip said to him, because Philip doesn't get it just like we don't get it, okay? Or just like our Phil doesn't. Oh, sorry, Phil. Phil said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So hold on. What was that first verse? He said, he said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip goes, just show us the Father, and we'll be okay. What the heck am I saying here? Are you understanding the words that are coming out of my mouth? you got to picture Jesus going a little crazy on this. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, you're an idiot. No, he said to him, he said, have I been, well, kind of, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Look at this line. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, Jesus is saying some really funny words here, but we're asking, how? How does this happen? He says, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. From now on, you do know him because you've seen me. Okay, how's that possible? He who has seen me has seen my Father. How is that? How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus responds to Philip. Verse 10. Do you not believe, these are Jesus' words, what a powerful statement. Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Look at that line. It's the same way that we're saved, church. In Jesus Christ. That word in needs to be highlighted in everybody's Bible because it is a powerful word. Without it, you get all kinds of strange meanings. If we are elect in Jesus Christ, but you remove in we have all kinds of doctrines that don't make sense. But when you have in, you all of a sudden see the ark. You see the instrument of our salvation. You see how salvation comes to us. Same here. I am in the Father. And look at what he says next. And the Father is in me. But he doesn't finish there. Right? He says, the words that I say to you, Look at this distinction. This, is, this just kills me. I, I don't know how to wrap my mind around what Jesus is saying here. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. How many of you would say that when you're ministering the gospel or you're trying to teach people? You say, nope, it's not going to be on my own initiative. It's not going to be the words that I come up with in my mind. It's going to be whatever the Father gives me through his word and and." and evidenced or is and impacted by his spirit how how are you going to do that jesus himself says the words that i say to you i do not speak on my initiative but the father abiding in me does his works that's an amazing thing you see what we have here is jesus as the image of the invisible god he told us that. And the reason why he's the image of the invisible God is based on his words too. Because the Father dwells in him and he dwells in the Father. 
There is cosmic community from the beginning. Do you know God did not create us because he was lonely? He didn't create you because he just didn't want heaven without you. Right? It's a nice lyric. It's a nice lyric. It's just not, this is not true. Right? He created you because he's a creator. He was in community. He's fine. Okay? He created you because he is God. And that's what he does. He is a creator. But what we need to get through in this song is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what the Father looks like? Look to Jesus. You want to know how the Father loves? Look to Jesus. You want to know how the Father would turn tables in a temple? Look to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's just the first theme of the song. Unbelievable. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God, but how? Because the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. The second one is this. He is the firstborn of all creation. Facebook post this week said something like, don't use a big word when a necessarily verbose blah, blah, blah word will do. It was really, it was really saying that, that you shouldn't use 50-cent words when there's only a, a need for a 5-cent word. And I liked that post this week, and then I got lambasted on that post and said, I posted this for you. This was about you. Quit using all those big words. I said, I don't try to use the big words. And then guess what somebody else did? Somebody else chimed in and said, and then he tells us those words in Greek. Jerks. Anyway... Whatever. Anyway, so fine. Use smaller words to quote a really awesome movie line. I'm disinclined to acquiesce to your request. Okay, so here we go. Here we go. The Greek word, he is the firstborn of all creation. What does firstborn even mean? This is so important. The Greek word prototokos. Prototokos, and you're going to say it with me, aren't you? Let's do it. One, two, three. Prototokos. One more time. Prototokos. I love hearing you guys say Greek words. Okay. Prototokos means firstborn, first in time. Yes, it does mean that. But it also means one of preeminence or first place in rank. And when the scripture talks about Jesus being the firstborn of creation and the firstborn among the dead, it is talking about his preeminent status above all things. Of course, it can refer to a lineage, but it doesn't refer to that here in this particular passage. Jesus being firstborn speaks nothing of him being a created being. This is a powerful apologetic against Mormon teaching, against Jehovah's Witness teaching. Right? Because Jesus is not a created being. Firstborn or only begotten don't mean what people think they mean. In John 3.16, the only begotten Son of God does not mean that he was generated. How many of you have struggled with that? You've read that and you're like, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Isn't he with God in the beginning and all this stuff? Yes, but look at this. John 3.16 actually translates only begotten Son, only, translates only one of his kind. Uh, I want you to picture song lyrics with this idea, okay? John 3.16 actually reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his son the only one of his kind. That's powerful. That's powerful. He is it, church. So when people say, why is there only one way to God? 
Why is there only one way to heaven? Why is there only one way to eternal life? Because Jesus is the only one of his kind. You can't get there any other way. Why? There's no train going there but Jesus, okay? He is the only one of his kind. This is, again, why the scripture communicates in him so much. It's in Jesus that we have our salvation. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. To prove this point even further from the text of scripture, uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, renders Psalm 89.27 this way. The psalmist refers to David as, King David, as the firstborn. We have big problems with this, though. Why? David wasn't firstborn. <laughs> As a matter of fact, David was dead last in his family. He's the last of the sons of Jesse. So does he mean first in order? No, he doesn't mean first in order by, by uh, firstborn. He, he means preeminence. He means a place. Some of you go, I know my Bible really well, and you know, Nathan, he's not talking about his earthly family. He's talking about his kingship over Israel. Still a problem. Was David the first king of Israel? No, Saul was the first king of Israel. So in no way does firstborn refer, in these contexts, refer to first in an order. It means preeminent, king of kings. It means something bigger than what we understand. In Romans 8.28, we see that Jesus is the firstborn among those Jewish people whom he foreknew. He knew from of old. Uh, you can study that more in our series on Romans. Either way, whatever we look at, the, however we look at that, Jesus is the preeminent one among the remnant of Israel. He is the preeminent brother among many brothers and many sisters. Why? Because back in the Roman series, I told you, Jesus wants a big family. Smile. He wants a big family, and he has invited us all to the table. So number one, Jesus is the image of the invisible God because the Father is in him and he is in the Father. Number two, he is the firstborn of all creation, which means he is preeminent. He is top dog. That's the Nathan International Version. Number three, all things exist by him and for him. Again, these are just the, the themes in this small six verses or so. This idea is establishing Christ yet again with the Father at creation, by him and for him. We see this in John 1, 1 John 1, Hebrews 1, and now in Colossians 1. So I think there's something about the writers wanting to put this up front and make sure that you know it. But John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word. Who is John writing about in this context? He's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, look at the, look at the community, the Word was with God. Ah, look at the next line, though. It's really amazing. And the Word was God. That's pretty powerful. He was with God, and He is God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning, look at the, look at the community again, with God, all things came into being through him. And I love this line. Oh, it makes me so happy. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus said it. It happened. If he didn't say it, it didn't happen. It's just the way it works, okay? That's how powerful the words of our God are. 
But here's something that I want you to see. We've seen these themes, right? Again, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. All things exist by him and for him. If I could write a song just with those principles being communicated, I'd be a happy, happy camper, okay? But something that I want you to see is that verses 15 through 17 and 18 through 20 actually serve as bookends to a very powerful truth that we're going to see snuggled right in the middle. And this is common for Greek literature. It's common for song lyrics inside of uh, Paul's day. Colossians 1, 15 through 17a says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. So the first piece that we saw was what's highlighted in yellow, right? He is the image of the invisible God, and he is, look at that next line, before all things. There's only one that pre-exists, right? There's only one. Okay, so this is really important. He's the image of the invisible God, and he is before all things. Now let's skip to the next verse and look at the yellow here. In this bookend, he communicates the same thing. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He is the image of the invisible God. And why? Because the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. So go back to the previous verse. Now let's go with the the green letters. Firstborn of all creation. That's the bookend here. Look at what happens at the end of this. Firstborn from the dead. So Paul is smashing all of this stuff together, and we're going to look at that central theme inside of this song in just a second. So back to the previous verse again. Pro presenters loving me today. This in the, uh, in the light green. All things have been created through him and for him. But look at the bookend. Look at what it says in the other half of it. Through him to reconcile all things To him, over and over, this theme is present, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, Jesus, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. So these bookends are really powerful, and they're the same themes that I just shared with you. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is preeminent, both over creation and recreation, and all things exist by him and for him. So what about that verse that's sandwiched right in the center? 17b through 18. Read it with me, church. You can read it out loud with me. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. Notice these things that we're seeing here. In him, right? And he is the head of the body. In him, it's always in Jesus. It's always in Jesus that we find anything, any, anything of our life. And then verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. You see, what verses 15 and 16 communicate is that Jesus is, uh, the, they communicate that Jesus is present. He is preeminent in the beginning of God's great story. Okay? In creation, Jesus is present. The preeminent one over all things. Verses 18b through 20 describe that he is preeminent at the end of all things. At the restoration of all things. Who's king, church? Who's king? Jesus. Who's in control right now, church? Jesus. And how do we know that? Because verse 18 tells us that he is head of the church. Is the church existing right now? 
Yeah, so who's the head of the church right now? Jesus. This is why in the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not partial authority. Not almost all authority. So who's in control right now? It's not the devil. He might play games. He might get you to try to believe that that's the case. But Jesus said, all authority in where? Heaven and earth has been given to me. He's, he's not lacking power. He's, and, and just so you know, heaven and earth is, a, is an idiom that means everywhere all the time. So Mars, Jesus is still king on Mars when Tesla gets there or something like this, right? right? It doesn't matter. His name's Elon Musk. I don't know why he just became Tesla to me. But anyway, so the point is that Jesus is king over all things. So it's the here and the now that Jesus is leading over. He's the head of the church. He is God. He is first. He is the sustainer of all things. Here's a fun way to look at it. If you like to write down notes, if you like these kind of uh, you know, pithy statements or something like this, this will be important for you. Everything in the prologue of the Bible that was lost, Genesis 1 through 3, is restored in the epilogue of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Okay? Everything that was lost is restored in the end. And just so you know, he didn't leave the gap ungoverned. He's king now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know about you, but that is good theology right there. That's good theology. That's the way we should see things. Who's in control, Nathan? Jesus is. Who's in control, Jacob? Who's in control, Mark? Yeah, I'll call on all of you if you don't start listening. No, I'm messing with you. But who's in control? Jesus is in control. It's good theology, and guess what good theology produces? Really good songs produces really good songs. It's no wonder why the Apostle Paul then continues in verses 21 through 23 to say this. And although you were, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. How can he do it, church? Because he's preeminent in all things. He is first in all things. He is king in all things. He never stops ruling. Never. Never. It's never happened to this point. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Which is the gospel of who? Jesus. Who is he? The preeminent one. There we are again and again and again, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Church, Jesus is preeminent in all creation. He's preeminent in recreation and he is preeminent now in the church. Why on earth, think about what this song was intended to do. Why on earth would we trust a man-made philosophy, a man-made tradition, or a man-made principle? Why would we trust it when the preeminent one said, here's what you do? Why would we trust it when the preeminent one said, just trust me, I got this? But you know what we do? We trust that stuff all the time, don't we? And the reason we trust it all the time is because we've let our minds slip from the gospel. 
And one of the ways our mind slips from the gospel is clearly because we don't read the word of God. But it is also because our songs are anemic in the church today. They don't have the power that a song like this seems to have. Last week, Paul's strategy was to pray for the people against this heresy. He didn't leave them at just praying. He also did. So he prayed for wisdom and knowledge, and then he taught them wisdom and knowledge. This week, if you will, in a manner of speaking, Paul sings a song to them. He's combating the Colossian heresy by singing to the church. Well, that shouldn't actually surprise us when the same apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5 that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody with our hearts to the Lord. This is a part of our method. It's a part of our system. This is how we begin to change our hearts or our hearts become renewed more and more every day. We combat it through good theology, and that good theology should be wrapped up in really good songs. So here's the conclusion of all of this. Modern day worship needs a lot of help. Can I get an amen? Amen. Next time I'll ask for a sincere one. But anyway, no, I'm messing with you. Modern day worship needs a lot of help. Why do I say this? It's not because modern day worship is not well produced. It is. It's probably better produced than any other, his, than any other time in Christian history. It is also not because the melodies aren't singable. We got some really good melodies in the church today, don't we? Really good melodies. Sing along songs. They're singable. It's also not because people don't want to play skillfully to the Lord. We have some of the most talented musicians in the world in the church today. We do. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute fact. And the musicians around here are extremely talented. Like, I, I really don't like the fact that I, get to, that I have to lose Adam or Brittany. Okay, but I don't like the fact that I have to lose them. But what I know is that God has always taken care of this church. And we saw today and will continue to see throughout the years, God is going to be faithful to us. So I say all that to say, Phil, I love you. Okay, I just, I wanted to let you know that. I picked on you before, wanted to bring it full circle there, okay? Modern worship needs help because we don't speak enough of the one who is preeminent. Hear me, church, listen. Edge of the seat, please hear me. It is because we don't speak enough of the one who is preeminent. The criticisms that I hear concerning worship are mostly petty and superficial. It's a complaint about style. It's too many or it's too few lyrics. It's too repetitive. It's not repetitive enough. Somehow, somehow, we have made worship. We've turned the whole thing around and made worship all about us and our preferences. What in the world? What in the world is wrong with us? Guys, we need to get back to making Jesus the center of everything we sing and everything that we do. The questions that we should be concerned with, the questions that matter, are whether or not our songs magnify the preeminent Christ. Okay? What our songs should be concerned with are do they exalt his character? And listen, you can't exhaust his character. You can't. There's been book after book after book after book after book written about the character of God, and you can't get to the end of it. I highly encourage you to check out Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, but you will not exhaust your understanding of his character. But this is what our songs need. Do they show us that he is preeminent? I think they don't, and I think we need those songs. Do they speak in detail of what God alone has done? And listen, 
Before I hurt somebody's feelings, I just want you to listen to me. Do they speak in detail of what God alone has done, aside from the idea that he loves us, oh, he loves us, oh, he loves us, oh, he loves us, oh, he loves us. You know why I call that out? Because we don't know what that word means anyway. We don't know what the word means. And so when we sing it and the church is supposed to see who Jesus is in the songs that we sing, they go, oh, he loves us. But the people who love me bite the big one. So I guess that's where God is too. No. No. He loves us is not enough in a skeptical, confused culture. What is enough is he is before all things. He is the head of all things. He is king. He is Jesus. He is the savior. And he's the only one you got coming. Trust him. That's what our songs need to say. If we don't address these issues, these problems, it's going to result in far worse than a generation with really junky songs. Right? It's going to end with a, a worse problem than you throwing out all your CDs from the 1990s. Okay? It's actually going to... All the way up to 2018. Okay, so anyway, right? It's more than just those terrible songs. The problem is that we have trivialized a tool that was designed to stave off apostasy. Worship. It was designed. The Apostle Paul employs it for this purpose. To stave off what? Losing their faith. Losing trust in Jesus, so he paints this picture of Jesus that's bigger than any one of us can imagine. Again, what did Tozer say? What comes into your mind when you think about God might predict with certainty the spiritual future of a man. And guess what? All we have to do is rewind 20 years ago, and we'll see where this chaos began. Because the songs became stupid. Not suggesting all of them. I'm simple. Simply telling you, the anthems we began to repeat on Christian radio non-stop, ad nauseum. The ones that we did, they didn't teach us anything. So we have a skeptical culture continuing to be a skeptical culture, continuing to be a skeptical culture. Tozer also said, what comes into our mind when we think about God can foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. I don't want to get 20 years from now and find a more skeptical American church. I want to see revival. I want to see a turn. I want to see the fathers turning back to the father, back to their children, and the children to their father, which all comes because we trust in Jesus, the preeminent one. Church, we have a responsibility, and we have to take this idea seriously. We can see where we're headed by the songs that we sing, and we need to use the tool that God intended. Here's how I wrap this whole thing up. This week in Father's Group, we're spending our time in Jeremiah chapter 31. And God tells Jeremiah to say this to captive Israel, and specifically Israel against Judah, uh, over and against Judah. And here's what, he says to, uh, here's what he says to Israel. Jeremiah chapter 31. You got that up there, guys? I'll just read it off my stuff if not. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to what he says. He says, Is Ephraim my dear son? If you know the story, you know the answer. Yes, sure, he is my dear son. Number two, is he a delightful child? If you know the story, you'd say, not so much. 
Not so much. He's not a delightful child. But look at what God says about Ephraim next. Is he a delightful child? Not so much. Indeed, as one as I have spoken as as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And this is the instruction of the Lord. Set up for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway. In ancient Israel, it was piles of stone. They would always remember God had brought them through the Red Sea. God had brought them through the Jordan. God had brought them through all of these things inside of their life. And these served as markers. But what are our markers today? I would suggest not putting piles of stones in your yard. It's not going to make sense to anybody else, but I would suggest that you spend time looking for really good songs with really sound theology, because those become the mile markers that point us back to the highway. Amen? This is what we need. God used this in the Old Testament. He uses this in the New Testament. We have mile markers. We have things that point us back to Jesus, and the promise comes right after that that says, the way by which you went, return, O virgin Israel, return to these, your cities. The promise is that God welcomes you back. God has called you back to this. Paul told the Ephesians this tool was what they needed to use, and we read that earlier. Paul presents to the Colossian church the same tool and sings that hymn to them with sound theology. The challenge for us today in the church, church, is to gain songs with sound theology. We have to get back to this idea. Because if we do, we hold the church right where she needs to be, looking only at the preeminent one. Not at the worship leaders, not at the, at the professional uh, uh, entertainment class of pastors that we have in our church today, but instead, they look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. Who alone is preeminent church? Who alone is king? Who alone is Lord? Who alone saves the world? We need that in our songs. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.